the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. And welcome back. A privilege to uh, bring back uh, Professor Wilford Riley. He's a professor of political science at Kentucky State University, author of uh, several books, both hugely important, uh, the ones I'm mentioning right now anyway, Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About, the other one, The Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. You can follow him on Twitter. It's one of the more active Twitter accounts, entertaining and educational uh, Will, W-I-L underscore D-A underscore Beast C-630, uh, Will to be 630 and his piece, current piece in National Review Magazine, the 1619 False History Project, the cause for which I rang him up today. Professor, Happy New Year, and thanks for being with us. Yeah, Happy New Year. Glad to be back on the show. Yeah, you betcha. It's been too long. My fault. I'll uh, I'll uh, make a resolution here to uh, ma- to uh, redress that. Uh, a lot has been written. A lot has been said. A lot on this show about the sixteen nineteen project. Uh, I think um, the way you broke it down, however, is something new, and you did a really good job in highlighting, if I might highlighting four key or four critical areas that the 1619 Project really um, violates and that should be the baseline or the basis for true or good or at least real American history. And I'm wondering if I could run those through with you, if that's the best way uh-huh. to kick it off or if you wanted to do a an overview first. Yeah, no, you're uh, you're breaking them down and okay. us talking about this. Sure. Sounds good. Sounds fine. All right, let's do it. Um, the first, the truly uh, that's ignored uh, and in the 1619 project, um, the first thing is the truly global prevalence of slavery and other barbaric practices. As you write, um, that uh, talk about that. There is no contextualization of this in the 1619 project. Yeah, well, what I said about the 1619 Project is that a lot of the things they said about slavery itself, I mean, slavery is bad, basically, with a lot more emphasis, aren't necessarily incorrect. Right. But that this is an odd way to teach history. Right. And the analogy that I give is that this would be like teaching about Native American history by focusing your whole curriculum on four Indian defeats. Mm-hmm. You know, from sort of the Aztecs to Wounded Knee, not talking about any of the Native victories, not talking about the fact that there were Native Americans in this this hemisphere before Columbus arrived, not talking about the fact that there were there are more Indians today than there are in Columbus got here. I mean, Native Americans are a significant political power in much of the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think that would be a reasonable way to teach about, quote-unquote, the Cowboys and the Indians. Mm-hmm. And I, I think 1619 has the same problem. The, the core of the project discusses these sort of American atrocities and tries to draw conclusions from them. I mean, the claim really explicitly is that what makes America unique is kind of this historical racial conflict 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. But many other things simply aren't discussed. I mean, you mentioned the most obvious of these, which is that 
morality in the past was very different from morality in the present. Mm -hmm. um, all adult males are expected to be warriors in most cultures, to give maybe the most obvious example. Yeah. But slavery was extraordinarily common almost everywhere in the world, until the USA and the Brits in the middle of the 18th century really began to go to task on eliminating it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the ancient Greeks had slaves, the ancient Romans had slaves, the major native tribes like the Aztecs and the Haida had slaves, and so on down the line. The Arabs had slaves, so, the Africans had slaves. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm just thinking yeah, it through. No, the, yeah, Arab, well, the Arab slave trade is actually discussed in some detail in the piece, because, mm -hmm. I mean, we tend to think of slavery in the context of white people sailing to Africa, the quote-unquote black continent, right. and then sailing back to Europe or America with captured you know, quote-unquote, black bodies. In reality, Africa and the Arab world historically were pretty vibrant compared to much of Europe until quite recently, and were no better morally. Right. So there was an Arab slave trade focused on the continent of Africa that began before the white trade, which is called the Atlantic slave trade, and lingered on longer, that overall shipped about 17 million people from Africa to the Arab world. There was also what's called the Barbary slave trade, where North Africans, who can be either black or Arab, sold essentially whites, captured warriors, sailors, and so on, into North Africa. Right. Um, that, and that trade sent perhaps two to three million Caucasians into Africa. So the great races fighting and enslaving each other, taking your prisoners and putting shackles on them across all color lines, this was very, very common. This is why we fought the Barbary pirates, right, right to the shores right. of Tripoli. right. right. So, yeah, all of that, it, it's odd to talk about slavery and not mention this. If you focus only on whites enslaving blacks and not Arabs enslaving whites and blacks, or occasionally blacks enslaving whites, Egyptians enslaving Jews, if you only look at this one small chunk of the picture, you do get this idea of our country is uniquely evil. And in fact, it was almost mundanely evil. This is something everyone did until we eliminated it. Nicely put, and I want to circle back to it uh, on another point, but let's get through your list because that's really well done. Second, the detrimental Im economic impact of what was called the peculiar institution in the American national economy. You do hear every once in a while uh, this story, uh, the, the, the economic dependence on it. Tell us about that. Well, yeah, so there, there are four major problems with 1619, kind of rounding out what you and I started. Yep. One is ignoring context. Yep. Two is this focus on slavery as kind of the engine of economic yep. wealth. And yeah, you, you can proceed on to the others, ignoring the black and white anti-racist movements. On, But this one I thought was pretty interesting, yep. because th this is another argument made without any of what we'd call comparison to alternatives in the academy. Mm -hmm. So Nicole Hannah-Jones and her co-authors say, Prior to emancipation, a good chunk of the U.S. economy, perhaps between 10 and 20 percent, was based around slavery. So slavery is what made America wealthy. Now, even leaving beyond the fact that that's an odd description of 20 percent of the economy, the question isn't, did the black people that were enslaved in the South and the whites alongside them work like everyone else did? It would be incredibly insulting to assume no. Right. The question is, in terms of wealth, was slavery something that made the country richer than it otherwise would have been? Right. And the answer, obviously, is no. Um, with no offense to black or white Southerners today, the South, until quite recently, was stereotyped as a backwater. Right. It was based around these uh, feudal, might be a good term, plantation home estates, 
which were worked by slaves. So the slave masters got very rich. Yep. But the, the slaves obviously didn't, the you know, offensive term, the quote-unquote poor white trash whose wages were kept down by competition with slavery, they didn't. This is the poorest region of the country. So just to look at, you know, the buccaneers that were in charge of the slave trade and say, well, they got rich, that, that doesn't mean much of anything. Slavery has always been an economic albatross, if you look at Haiti, Russia, Brazil, just countries around the world. I, I think that is such an important point. Um, we don't have to get into it, but I often analogize that to places where there is a lot of legalized drug dealing. No, it's not making states rich. It's making those commercial industries rich. We can come back to that okay. another time, um, whether it works or not. Um, the nuanced but deeply patriotic perspectives here expressed by people of all races – on um, the anti-slavery movement, the anti-slavery ethic in America. I often remind people um, it was the majority of the country that fought to end slavery. It was the majority of the country that prevailed. I, you know, the defeated side here was the minority of the country, the minority of the soldiers. Anyway, it's there, there, a lot is being ignored here when we only focus on the part of the slaveholding republic, uh, to use Don Fehrenbacher's words. Yeah, I mean, so that, uh, essentially, that that's the third point, I mean, yep. going state yep. by state through the four. Right. So one of the point. I think that this is actually one of the more coherent and important points in the essay. Yep. But essentially, in a sentence, the good guys won. Yeah. yeah. In, uh, in American history. Yeah. This actually, as a black guy, although not someone incredibly focused on these, these events a hundred or more years before I was born, but as an, as an African-American man, obviously I understand that the country has a legacy of racism, just as, as a male, I understand it has a legacy of sexism. Sure. Again, to, to some extent, this isn't my fault. I didn't abuse women in the Oh, past. I'm not going to hold the problems in the academy against you either. No, you're a professor. Don't, uh, don't worry. <laughs> of which there are many. I'm not going <laughs> to... No, no one's responsible for yeah. things they did right. do. Right. The, the point is, we do tend to focus to an incredible degree on this kind of stuff, but the actual trajectory of U.S. history, and of world history, in fact, I think it's fair to say has been moving dramatically forward toward a better place from a worse one. Right. So the, this point is at its root just very simple. In 1865, the Union broke the Confederacy and won the Civil War, and was by no means kind to the South. I mean, the sort of the one-sided narrative of the good guys won, even is more ambiguous than you might think. But in 1954, obviously the Union were the good guys. Yeah. 1954, I mean, we ended segregation in the USA. Yep. 1967, we passed the Civil Rights Act, making most forms of racism civilly and criminally illegal. And we're not going to every point of this. I mean, we've had pro-minority affirmative action in the USA since 1967. Can I do this? Can I take so, a quick commercial break on this point and come right back? Do you have time for one? Oh, that, that would be great. Yeah, uh, I, I appreciate it. You betcha. Professor Wilford Riley is our guest, author of Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. Taboo, 10 facts you can't talk about, and you really want to follow him on Twitter. Trust me. Will da Beast 630 We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Professor Wilfred Riley, uh, Kentucky State University, his piece at uh, Nash in National Review, the current issue, the 1619 False History Project, is what we're discussing, and his analyses breaking down four major 
elements that um, really affect the study of history to the detriment of the 1619 Project, but really to the detriment of all of us and all of our students. Uh, Professor, you were right before the break getting into the third of the fourth, uh, the fourth uh, critical pieces, uh, it being that there was quite an anti-slavery, not only perspective, but movement in this country that the 1619 Project seems to... Um, well, I don't want to use, uh, whatever, whitewash. <laughs> I'll just say it. Okay. Go ahead, sir. Yes. So I think that the simplest way to put this might be the 1619 Project doesn't mention Frederick Douglass. Right. I, I don't think it mentions Malcolm X. It mentions uh, Martin Luther King briefly and in passing. There's a great deal of focus on sort of obscure Marxist historians, right. if you look at the sources and sort of these traditional slave narratives and actually go back to the arrival of the first captured African warriors in Virginia in 1619, that's the year. And I, I think the reason for this is that if you actually dealt with Douglas or dealt with King, you'd have to acknowledge Booker T. Washington, you'd have to acknowledge the fact that these people liked America. Yeah. That there was a great deal of back and forth with and anger about the white compatriots at the time. But that Frederick Douglass was a pretty unabashed patriot. I mean, oh, yeah. He was the guy who said, yeah, the 4th of July may not be everything you'd imagine it to be to a slave, but it also called the Founding Fathers great men. Oh, yeah. Glorious heroes. Liberty document was our Constitution. Yes, 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 yes. Yes, it's right. the everything that needs to be in that priceless compact yeah. is in it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Frederick Douglass was probably more enthusiastic about the USA than many people today, sometimes Agreed. including me. Agreed. I mean, so... But dealing with this, actually saying, obviously, Mr. Douglas recognized the problems in the country, but at the same time, he thought the Founding Fathers were one of the greatest groups of men that had ever assembled. You get the feeling he was profoundly glad not to be living in the Africa of the right. time. Yeah. Yeah. All of those things, and there's actually a long tradition of that in black literature. Uh, Keith Richburg wrote a book called Out of Africa. Oh, yes, the Washington Post uh, reporter. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yes, yes, but yes. I recommend people read it. Yep. And again, I think I think many Americans who come from, say, Bosnia or Northern Ireland or Mexico, by the way, could write a, write a similar volume. Mm-hmm. And he goes back home to what's essentially, first he starts out in Kenya, I believe, he goes to Nigeria, yep. which is where most black Americans and such has come from. He winds up, he's a great reporter, so he winds up in Rwanda during the war. And, I mean, his description is that this place and most of the world are dull, primitive, hellholes compared to D.C., to a major American city. Basically, he says, whatever the reasons, however the means, thank God I'm American, basically. Yeah, there's a there's a really funny, essentially, I mean, we're both people that have had a drink at a hotel with a bar, and sure. there's a funny passage where he talks about, you know, he goes to Goree Island, where the slaves had been shipped from, and there are people crying, and these business women writing inscriptions in the book, like, all whites understand is the gun. And his thought is, well, I just left the wars in Africa. I'm glad to be going back to the USA. Yeah, yeah. So he, he says that had he come from the other side, had he visited Goree first, yeah. there probably would have been months of this lingering anti-patriotism, but he came from, as it were, the right direction, yeah. going back home as a black American. Yes. He's, got, he's got tickets on United. Yes. So, it's, I mean, it's, you know, it, there's a poignancy to that, and mm. you, you can picture many Americans confronting, you know, the Yugoslav highlands in the same way, some of El Salvador. But, anywho, so, the, the point three is essentially just the 1619 Project authors, unlike Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King, don't seem to like the country very much. Yep. So they don't, they don't mention this heroic movement that won. Yep. The defeat of 
Uh, to the extent it's mentioned at all, the defeat of the Confederates, the defeat of white racism is attributed to who sort of the reactionary wing of the black community, I think it's fair to say, or revolutionary wing of the black community. Um, I, that's a separate question. I don't, I don't think that's true to any real extent. You need it. But like there is an almost weird, but there is an eerie or weird, almost new lost cause movement to be found here, right? As There is something to, to an odd fascination with, with the fact that the South didn't lose. Yeah, I think that, I think it's really interesting. A black female friend who's an academic but also a veteran, generally votes Republican, she said this on my Twitter and Facebook page, in fact, that a lot of the stuff that you see from 1619 or Howard Zinn just seems like recycled Confederate Yeah, propaganda. yeah, 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 yeah. I, that is the history of America. It is the Confederate history of, the America, of America they read. It's what Jefferson Davis and Alexander Stevens said our founding was, as opposed to Martin Luther King or Frederick Douglass or Ulysses S. Grant. Oh, there's no question yeah. in my mind that the history they are writing is the Confederate history of America. There's no question. Well, it's a fascinating. I'm I'm a political scientist more than a historian. So I mean, someone someone else would have to dig into these texts. But it'd be fascinating to see a right leaning historian look at this. I mean, are a lot of these ideas, like for example, that the South was very well fed and had a higher income than the North, which yep. strike me as ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But do those come from, say, slave master narratives? Have right. we have we reached the ultimate in absurdity? And politics being what it is, I wouldn't be surprised at all. No, no um, that's right. But, no, but at any rate, so in, in reality, those of us who come from the North cheered for the Union, I mean, understand that, the, you know, good guys won. That's point three. And point four is just, I'm speaking here as a black man, as someone who very much likes the diverse modern America, within reason, re-immigration and so on. But I mean, speaking as someone who's fond of this, it's just idiotic to say that historical black slavery or historical race war between blacks, whites, and natives is the reason for all American uniqueness. Right. So I just list a couple of different things, like Irish immigration. Right. And right. I mean, the NASA, <laughs> everyone, everyone working together to go to the moon, you know, the growth of the California economy with the Japanese farmers. There, there's an element of what are you talking about here? Yep. But it's, it's very rare, I think, that this is challenged, because it's, it's so incredibly woke. It's black and it's feminist and it's from the Times and so on. It's a Pulitzer Prize-winning project. But a lot of it just seems like nonsense. It would be hard to publish. It would be hard for one of my students to publish a book report saying everything unique in America was invented by black people. Right. But we're now at a point where this is this is tolerated in the public space, and that, that's kind of problematic. My last question is: um, Is the attempt here to kind of make America a down market commodity? Is it part of a re-racialization of society, or is one kind of in service of the other? I think it's an interesting question. So there, generally, when you see a major trend, there are multiple forces at work. I wouldn't be surprised if the woke movement, to some significant extent, was funded by overseas opponents. Uh huh. Actually, I get I it. Mean, I, yeah, no, I get it. I mean, I was, I was in the business world for quite a while. Did pretty well. I mean, when you think about the amount of money the Chinese and the Arabs have invested in the U.S. economy, why not? Why not throw a few bucks in that direction? Um, that's an interesting, actually, as a counterpoint to the endless allegations, you know, based or not, that the, the Russians are helping out the political rights on the world's big place. But I think within <laughs> the minds of the people that are doing this, there's a weird phenomenology going on. So my personal honest opinion is that for decades, white liberals said ridiculous things to kind of boost their own bona fides. Sure. Like, I mean, we've all read Radical Chic, where the people are talking about the Black Panthers and women's, you know, 
intimate liberation, let's say, and you know, we're going to do this and that on the street corners. I don't think that these first generations of white radicals, Judith Butler and so on, knew that people were listening. That the people in the increasingly integrated urban schools where they were teaching were hearing their words and not understanding them as posturing. So I think Nicole Hannah-Jones really does believe that black people invented up with everything in America. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I get this often from young, woke friends as the population demographic shifts. The, the question is, who? the question to some extent is, why are people propping this up? Yeah. Because I don't think Kent Schultzberger at the New York Times believes that. Right. And at some point, the longer this goes on, the harder it's going to be for people to stand up and say, all of this is nonsense. Yeah. And this is before we even get into the gender issue and so on. Yeah. But at some point, that is going to have to happen. Professor Riley, uh, but for the time I could speak for you to you for hours, you are a great teacher, um, and I appreciate your time with us. I really do. God bless you, sir. Well, thanks a lot. You as well. Thank Bye. you. We'll be in touch. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. There's that great Eric Clapton. Um, I want to say something about that uh, Wilford Riley interview. First of all, um, tragic as it is, the sands of time taking away from us great scholars of yore, you know, teachers I had, teachers you may have had, uh, or at least public intellectuals that we looked up to who are aging out, um, they, they didn't develop overnight. You know, you didn't just wake up and be David McCullough. You know, it took him a lot of work to get there. You didn't just wake up and be, I don't know, Walter Burns or Harry Jaffa or someone like that. It took took people a lot of time to hit their stride and, and to become well-known for their work. Watch this man, Wilford Riley. Watch him. We've gotten in on the ground floor with him over the last couple of years. I've been interviewing him. And uh, that which he writes, that's what, that which he produces, that's that which he says – um, what's what's that uh, what's that line from Son of a Woman? He's going to make you proud someday. Well, more than that, he's 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 going to be as big as they get. He's he's got something. The second, more than something. The second thing um, I want to point out is that thing he mentioned about a friend of his on Twitter that we've been talking about here for a long time. This, at the end of the day, I do think is going to be the intellectual explosion of all that the left says about America. At some point, when we reach the ability to have critical mass and understanding that the running down of America's founding, uh, the running down of America's founding has steeped in and based upon uh, racism and slavery uh, and that the founders intention was to protect it and expand it and that our founding was rotten to the core. You hear this from the um, you hear this from all of the uh, all the entirety of the socialist movement, almost the entirety of the left. You certainly get it from the squad on any given day. Um, the reckoning that there was this view in America, it did exist. It just existed on the losing side. It was the Confederate view of our history. You go back and read Alexander Stevens' speeches. You go back and read the things Jefferson Davis wrote. You go back and read uh, Ta uh, Roger Taney's um, opinion in Dred Scott. And then uh, read the majority opinion in Plessy v. Ferguson that we talked about last week. And then read the dissents. Read Curtis's dissent in, uh, in say, uh, Dred, Or read uh, Harlan's dissent in Plessy. It was the minority view on the Supreme Court at the time, to be sure, 
but it was the majority sentiment in this country. The South didn't win. The South lost. And the majority of America was not in the South. The majority of the Civil War soldiers were not in the South. And the sentiment of Alexander Stevens that our founding was racist or meant to be, though they thought racism a good thing, but for that element, that history is well documented. It just existed in the justification for the South to maintain hold of slaves. There was another point of view, a, a stronger and ultimately, thank God, dominant point of view led by the likes of Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant. It is astounding to me, and Fred Douglas and others, obviously, lots of others. It is astounding to me, as Will Wolford Riley points out, that you can read a 1619 project, the point of which is to discuss slavery and its legacy in this country, while eliminating all those intellectual heroes that not only we studied as kids— but who led to the overcoming of slavery. What did they see in the Constitution? Well, that the left cannot have. That the left cannot have. So they just simply rewrite their own history. They rewrite our history. The word memory hole isn't quite strong enough for what's taking place here. What you're reading in the 1619 Project, I will say it as strongly as I can, is simply rot. R-O-T. It is rot. It is not history. It's not even bad history. It's no history. It is merely several people's opinions. The ideas that schools are taking this upon themselves to adopt because they think it's au courant or they think it is intellectually fashionable or they think it is cutting edge, it ain't any of it. It was defeated on the battlegrounds of these great shores and in this great land between 1861 and 1865. It was a view that already – it was an opinion that already raised its ugly head and got, thank God, cut off. The idea they want to bring it back again is to what end? The end I asked Wilford Riley about. What end are they trying to bring it back for? It's not to re-racialize society. It's not obviously to show the benefits of slavery. There are none except to the slave owner, I suppose, in a bizarre, perverted way. It's, it's to create and protect this burlesque notion, also a fashion, used to be a minority, now a majority fashion in our intellectual pursuits, that America is a sick society, a down market commodity, and not the last best hope on earth, and certainly nothing that was ever great. That's the point. That's the point. And if you don't think that there's a uh, socialist Marxist energy behind that, well, that's why Wilford Riley says he sometimes thinks other countries are funding this movement. I can understand why. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. I um, I was watching a series on Netflix called Bad Sport, like he's a bad sport, bad sport. And it opened up with something that took place in Arizona I had no memory of. Now, I wasn't living here at the time, but nonetheless, Bill, I wonder, you were here in 94, weren't you? Do you remember a huge, according to the documentary, I, I had no knowledge of this. According to the documentary, this was one of the greatest scandals in NCAA sports, and it was the ASU basketball point shaving team Do you, uh, uh, scandal. Do you remember this? Stephen Headache yeah. Smith. Yeah, yes. Headache Smith, right. 
You do remember it. So most of it, vaguely. Uh, fascinating. An hour and a half on this. I had no idea. Now, from what I could tell, this guy, uh, Steve Smith, he would have been as good as, as good gets. He would have he was looking forward to being first draft or, if, or whatever and, you know, just ruined himself on this thing. Was he as good as people said? I think he was. I think he was a point guard, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I guess we'll never know. I guess, yeah. He, he chose poorly. He chose poorly. Amazing story. I just had no idea that. It, would you classify it as one of the major scandals? Because I was watching when someone said, "Well, they may just try be trying to promote, you know, that they're doing this." <laughs> one of the major scandals, you know, maybe it was kind of self. Uh, it was pretty big nationwide. I remember there was a made-for-TV movie on cable about it oh, about really? 15 to 20 years ago. No kidding. Well, it's a pretty good series on Netflix, Bad Sport. Uh, you know, some of the sports may interest you. know, Athletic events may interest you. Some may not. I thought that was interesting. I th- and then there was an ice skating, Olympics ice skating uh, scandal in 2002, Utah Winter Olympics. I have no memory of either where the Russians evidently uh, paid off a French judge to give the Russians the gold and the private of the Canadian team, where in plain sight, before everyone's eyes, the Russians made three key errors in the, fi- errors in the figure skating thing, and the, Ru- and the Canadians were perfect. Uh, do you remember any of this? Probably not as much. Yeah, not as much of an Olympics fan, but I remember hearing about it. You do. So, so – you know what they did? This is such a perfect, perfect emblem of our times. Perfect. So having gone into the investigation and realizing that the Canadians should have win, won and that the Russians should have gotten second place, did they change the medals? Did they say, ah, oh, Russia, you give it to Canada. Canada, you give your silver to Russia. Did they do that, which would have been the just thing? No. <laughs> it's the postmodern era, so what did they do? What did they do? They gave both teams the gold. Exactly. Exactly. Everyone's a winner. Make more gold medals. Yeah, make more gold medals. Nothing to see here. Um, okay, anyway. Uh, I've got to do uh, I've got to do this this audio uh, because we talk here often of um, uh, you know exquisite uh, exquisite attention to rituals of meaninglessness, exquisite punctilio for no end to a nihilistic point. I was talking about you know Eric Adams as the new mayor of New York City. And how he seems to be maybe running against the grain a little bit over there, particularly when it comes to some common sense issues like keeping schools open and law enforcement. Uh, Obsta Principis is a lesson I need to uh, absorb as well. Beware of first thoughts. Some of you have been reading and scratching your heads. You're right. That's the right. That's the right notion. Scratching your head here. Uh about how New York City is now going to allow non-citizens to vote in local elections, non-federal elections. And if you think this is a a contemptible thing, you're right. Jake Tapper, who is now occasionally pushing a little bit against the grain over at CNN, had Eric Adams on – it's fine to listen to Jake if you want, but pay attention to Eric and tell me if you don't, Mayor Adams, and tell me, 
Tell me if this word salad gets you anything close to an answer. Anything close. Even in the ballpark of a legitimate answer to the question being asked. Go ahead, Bill. Run this. You announced last night that you're going to support a law passed last month in New York City which will allow roughly 800,000 legal non-citizens to vote in local elections, provided that they've lived in New York for at least 30 days. You previously called the bill problematic and expressed concern about giving a right to vote to non-citizens who have only been here for a short amount of time. I think there are a lot of Americans watching right now who might share your concerns and, and also have more broadly questions about the idea of people who have not taken a citizenship test, prepared for that test by learning about the U.S., who haven't sworn an oath to the country, getting to vote. Why did you change your mind and why is it acceptable for non-citizens to vote in an American election? No, I did not change my mind. I supported the concept of the bill. The one aspect of that I had a problem with and I thought was problematic was the 30-day part of being in the country for 30 days was the place that I had questions. And I sat down with my colleagues. I'm a big believer in uh, conversation. We have to start talking to each other and not at each other. And after hearing their rationale and their theories behind it, uh, I thought it was more important to not veto the bill or get in the way at all and allow the bill to move forward. In New York City, just Brooklyn, for example, 47% of Brooklyn I speak a language other than English at home when I was the bar president. And so I think it's imperative that people who are in a local municipality have the right to decide who's going to govern them. And I support the overall concept of that bill. Doesn't the bill just make a mockery of the idea of American citizenship, though? I mean, this is just for local elections, but... Does that mean, like, next uh, New York City is going to want non-citizens to vote in federal elections? I mean, and what do you say to all the people who went through the process, the difficult process of becoming an American citizen, studying for the test, swearing an oath of allegiance to the United States of America, who who now see this legislation just saying, well, anyone who's here. Okay, did he justify his reasoning at all or answer the question at all? He said one aspect that was problematic was the 30-day th- – what part of it was problematic and why did you overcome it? I love this idea, he says, we need to start talking to each other, not arguing with each other. Oh, thanks. But who's the each other? Was anyone in the room who thought this was a bad idea? Did you hear from that person? Did you hear from any constitutional scholars on our side? Did you hear from anyone who thought giving non-citizens the right to vote might be? And this 47 percent speak another language? Okay, There's an answer for that. Why don't we just change everything? Why don't we just put all the signs in their language? Or maybe, 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 maybe they might want to think about learning English. Post hoc rationalization. We spend an awful uh, – no, we spend a good amount of time here uh, talking about ideology, particularly um, uh, ideologies supporting conservatism, philosophies supporting freedom, but also Marxism. I don't know if a show focuses on Marxism as much as this one. And I was rereading – as I've told you all, I, I'm rereading some classics. One of the books I'm rereading – is the book Witness by Whitaker Chambers. I cannot convey it strongly enough. I cannot tell you if you want to read beauty um, that you will find you will find the book Witness by Whitaker Chambers beautifully written, tragically, but beautifully written. And he, in his book, gave what I'm calling a post-talk justification. 
when we do talk about Marxism here animating the left and, and so much now of the Democratic Party and why it is so, why are good Democrats putting up with it? Um, it was an answer I couldn't exactly give an explanation to. And then in my rereading yesterday, I found it. Chambers gave me the answer. He was asked the same question. Were all the people he was indicting as Soviet agents in the 40s and 50s, were they true believers? And he wrote, men who sincerely abhorred the word communism and the pursuit of common ends found that they were unable to distinguish communists from themselves. For men who could not see what they firmly believed was liberalism added up to socialism. And you can't hardly scarcely be expected to see your socialism and your liberalism when it adds up to communism. Any charge of communism enraged them precisely because they could not grasp the difference between themselves and those against whom it was made. When he aimed at communism, Chambers confessed, he also hit at something else. What was it? That great social revolution which in the name of liberalism has been inching its ice cap over the nation for two decades. Back then. Back then. Seven or eight now. Until tomorrow, God bless you all and class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.